You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Father, we are thankful again for this privilege to be in your house and to worship you. We do pray now that as we've just sung, we're prone to wander, Lord, we feel it, prone to leave the God we love, but seal our heart, we ask, Lord, in this time, would you use your word to transform us into your likeness, for the sake and glory of your son, Jesus Christ, in his name we pray, amen. Uh, I'm going to be looking at Matthew chapter 5 tonight, which is the passage that Liz just read. But I want to make reference really quickly before we dive in there to the Corinthian passage. It was also read. Paul writes to the Corinthian church, and he's telling them what it, what it means to actually be living out this godliness that he's calling them to. And how they are to go about doing that. So we're going to look at the, the, a little bit of the Sermon on the Mount tonight. And if you read the Sermon on the Mount, I think anybody who reads it would go, no way I can do that. No way I can meet the standard in which Jesus is telling me to meet. Uh, how am I supposed to do it? Many people just say, well, you know, I'll just do my best and give up on the rest kind of deal. I don't think Paul would tell us that. I don't think Jesus would have us look at that that way either. And the reason I think that is because in Paul's words, when he's talking to the Corinthian church, he makes a statement that is critically important for us to be able to digest and, and really be able to manifest and contemplate Jesus' words in Matthew it's the larger context of the, the Sermon on the Mount here where Jesus is going to point us. And this statement that Paul makes, I would say, is of cosmic gospel importance. How about that for a phrase, right? Cosmic gospel importance. Now, what is this phrase that Paul says? Well, at the end of the passage that we just read, he speaks to the church about wisdom, about specifically how to, how to attain godly wisdom and not worldly wisdom. And obviously there's a difference. One has in its name godliness. And so you, you have to pursue the Lord to seek the wisdom of the Lord. And he asks the question, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Now, he's, he's bringing that back from the Old Testament. There are multiple places where that very similar phrase is quoted from the Old Testament. Job 15, Isaiah 40, Jeremiah 23. Several of those have asked that question, who is to know the mind of the Lord? And he makes clear that this wisdom that, we, that we're acknowledging that comes from the Lord is not from simple philosophies or philosophers, but it is from the Lord himself. And then the statement that I believe is huge for us as Christ followers. Because if you're like me, you hear what this godly wisdom and you say, well, I don't think I interpret it very well at times. I certainly fall short of it at times. What in the world am I to do with this? And Paul says this, but we have the mind of Christ. We have the mind of Christ. How we know and gain wisdom is by the very knowledge that is given to us by Christ himself. And that continues to be revealed through the Holy Spirit. And so the mind of Christ is how we are then to consider the teaching of Jesus on the mountain that we have before us in Matthew 5. And so I want to continue to, as we always do, encourage you to follow along in your scriptures tonight in Matthew chapter 5. Mike will often say it. Uh, we'll, we do our best to be faithful to the scriptures, but uh, you follow along with me to make sure that my words are not out of step with scripture Ben mentioned last week in his sermon about the Sermon on the Mount, something about um, Martin Luther, and I think it was very similar to what I'm going to quote to you. But Martin Luther, as he reflects on the Sermon on the Mount and Jesus' words, he says, Jesus is setting a standard so high 
that no one single person other than himself can reach it. What he is forcing us to do is to actually hold a mirror up in front of us to see that we can't attain the standard and that we must surrender our lives to the Lord and his grace in order to have eternal life. I think Martin Luther was right. Jesus has set this standard so high that if we read it, we say, there's no way I'm getting there. It's an impossible to keep standard. We all break God's commandments all the time, and we're all in desperate need of God's grace and forgiveness, and praise the Lord that both of those things are freely given to the, through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. We can't just look at this impossible task, however, and say that because Jesus taught some very hard things that we just get to give up on them. That we should actually be reading these and saying, Lord, how can I be transformed into your likeness? How can the mind of Christ take over my mind so that I might then carry out these commands that you have given? Because we see Jesus say in verse 19 that it's not okay to relax them. He says, therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, if we take Martin Luther's approach, which, we, which is often the case, to the extreme, it becomes that we often find cheap grace. Well, I'll just not do it and not worry about it and Jesus grace will cover me I love grace and we all should love grace but we have to look at grace in the view of Paul's words I think in Romans chapter 6 when he says shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase by no means so we don't give up trying to live a holy life because the standard is so far above what we're used to and we don't look at this as some sort of pick, a, pick yourself up by your bootstraps and moral goodness that we're trying to attain. We look at it as Jesus' vision that he's giving us that only can be accomplished through him. So if we get to chapter 5 of Matthew and you, and you pick up in verse 13, he says these words, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Salt's a wonderful thing. I love salt because salt makes vegetables taste better than they, they ever would otherwise. I mean, I can eat broccoli with salt on it and cheese. You cover it with a bunch of stuff. You make broccoli taste good, right? But, but salt is meant to, for, for our mind, we, didn't, we don't think about it the way biblically. We think about it as a taste improver, Right? But what Jesus is actually saying here is that salt in that day would have been used as a preservative. It was the thing that allowed most likely the fish that they had to last a little bit longer because they didn't have refrigeration. They couldn't keep it cool. They couldn't keep it uh, lasting. And so they would salt it so that it would last a couple days until they could get to it and eat it. It keeps the flavor, yes, but it preserves, most importantly, things from going bad. And what Jesus says is if the salt has lost its ability to function as that preservative, then whatever it was preserving becomes garbage. It's to be thrown out and trampled under feet. The vision Jesus was conveying to those who would follow him in that day, and to us, I believe, is that you are the salt. You are the preservative on this earth. As they heard his words, they were to understand 
they were to be the preservative that pointed the created image of God to the creator himself. What that means as we read the Sermon on the Mount is that we manifest the character of Christ so that we literally are the preservative of the earth that points humankind to the true and living God. Jesus is not desiring for us to say or affirm the commandments of God or to be legalistic minimalist when it comes to the commandments. You know what that means? I'll just do the bare minimum and I'll get away with it. That's why he says at the very end, your righteousness should exceed that of the Pharisees and the scribes. Because the Pharisees and the scribes of the day said, if I can just make a list of things, and I love me a good list. Everybody loves a good list, right? And when you check that box off because you've done it, you feel really good about yourself. But that's, that's not how it works religiously because the Pharisees were checking the boxes off and saying, we've done all the good and right things, but their hearts were far from the Lord. And so Jesus is pointing them and saying that your righteousness, your heart, the pursuit of me has to exceed the, that of the Pharisees. He's not desiring for us to pick ourselves up by our bootstraps again. He's saying, but to do this, you have to rely on me. It's the rich young ruler, right, who came to Jesus and said, I've done all the things, Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, go sell everything you have and follow me. And he can't do it. He can check the boxes, but he can't give up the very things that are the treasures to him that he worships. And so if we look at this passage and say, well, I'm better than the Pharisees, because that's the tendency we want to do, right? You want to look across the pew and say, oh, I'm not as bad as that guy over there. I know what he did. I know what she did. I know what she gossiped about or what he did last week at work, and I'm not that bad. That's not in there. Jesus is saying, we're not comparing to one another. Your standard, my standard is so high that you would pursue after me with all righteousness. And that we all fall short of that. And that the grace is sufficient when, to make up the gap when we fall short. But it doesn't give us an excuse to not pursue after righteousness. We can't say, I didn't murder anyone today, so I'm doing pretty good. Or I didn't commit adultery today. Jesus doesn't want this legalism. In the same way, he doesn't want our prideful thinking that you can accomplish it on your own. When we think in this sort of way, we again fall into the trap of comparing ourselves to one another. Jesus wants the character of the heart to reflect his glory. The mind of Christ that we are called, that, that sets the standard on human accomplishment, not on human accomplishment, but on godly righteousness. If I do my taxes honestly for 40 years, and one year I decide not to do them honestly, and I get audited for it. It's not as though the IRS is going to say, well, you've done pretty good the last 40 years. We'll just let this one slide. No, they don't do that. If I'm faithful in my marriage for years, but commit the sin of unfaithfulness, then I lose the trust of my spouse. Jesus is, is teaching something difficult because he's honing in on what it means for the people of God to have integrity and character towards him. The vision is seeing hearts transform for the glory of God, to be the salt of the earth so that others might see Jesus through us and the things that we do so that we're not pointing the mirror at ourselves, which we'll get to here in just a moment. The second part of Jesus's vision, very similar, is that he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket 
but on the stand and it gives light to all the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. He calls us to be the light that points others to Christ. Maybe you've heard the children's song. I remember I said this this morning. I realized that I don't think my children know this song, but this little light of mine. I don't think I've ever taught them that song. That's kind of an older song, but maybe you've heard it. A couple of you are nodding. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. And what's the song say? Hide it under a bushel? No, I'm going to let it shine. Don't let Satan blow it out. And oftentimes we'd go, it out. You know, you blow it out. Don't let Satan do that. That's where the song comes from. It was let it shine, let it shine, let it shine. When I was in Florida, one of the things that I was responsible for at the church where I was, we had a preschool there that was age two through kindergarten. So two-year-olds through, through five-year-olds would come every week for chapel service. And I helped to do the, the preschool chaplain, or I was kind of the preschool chaplain. And I would do the chaplain, chaplain every, every couple of weeks. And I would go in there with these two-year-olds through five-year-olds. And if you can imagine trying to, uh, to keep their attention for uh, 30 minutes or so. I mean, it's chaos in there. They're upside down. They're, they're running, you know, they're, I mean, it's, it gets very charismatic when you're with two through five-year-olds. And, but I would, every time I would go in there, I would light the candles on the altar. And then I would turn around and I would get their attention and I would say, why do we light the candles? And they would yell. Once they'd been there a little while, they knew that it was coming and I knew it was coming. They would try to blow the roof off the place by saying, Jesus is the light of the world. And they'd yell it as loud as they could. And then I would look at them and say, and what are you? We are the light of the world. That's what Jesus is telling us here. You are the light of the world. And a city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Don't hide the light, but shine the light so that others may see your good works and glorify God because of them. Dave Ramsey, the author of Financial Peace University, tells a story of when he went bankrupt and in the bankruptcy, he lost everything, but all of his debts were canceled. And he had exorbitant amounts of debts, credit cards, and various other things. He owed creditors his money, but it was wiped away in bankruptcy. And he says, when I got my financial house in order, I was convicted by the Lord that I owed these creditors this money, even though they had no record of it. And so he would call them when he would have the money to pay them and say, hey, I owe you money. And they would say, no, you don't. We don't even see your name in here. We, we haven't, there's no record of you in here. The bankruptcy had wiped it clean. He said, well, you don't think I do, but I do. And I'm going to send you a check for X amount of money. And you can do whatever you want with it. But my good conscience and Jesus himself tells me that I need to pay my debts back. And many would ask him, why would you do that? Because I believe that's what the Lord is telling me to do, to be a man of integrity and character. He was showing an example of what it looked like to be the light of the world. Jesus' call again in verse 19 was to exceed that of the Pharisees, to be the light of the world. Isaiah had this problem in his day. When we read in Isaiah, the people would obey the law, they would fast, they would make sacrifices, they would do everything that was required of religion, but their character and their hearts were far from the Lord. They ignored the poor, they ignored the hungry. They ignored the naked. They didn't care for the homeless. But they had the religious acts down really well. Isaiah called them out, making clear that the poor needed caring for, the hungry needed food, that people needed to see the true character of God. And when they do, they will be drawn to the light like moths to a flame. 
because that's not the norm. It wasn't the norm then, it's not the norm today. But when we shine the light in the darkness, darkness flees. They will ask the question, why do you treat people like this? And our answer is not simply because it's the right thing to do, but it is because it's what Jesus calls us to do as people of God. As God's people, we are to reflect God's glory in such a way that people's hearts are transformed and they want to know God. So I'll bring it full circle back around this evening. We can't reflect God's glory without first realizing it takes God doing it in us. We can't do it on our own. If we really dig deep down, you'll find that, at least for me, I'm pretty selfish and I don't want to do that. I don't like to do those things because it's, it takes me out of my comfort zone. It makes me uncomfortable at times, so I don't, I don't feel like doing it. And, and quite frankly, I'm just lazy and selfish. And so I can't do it on my own, but I have to ask God, if this is something you want me to do, then you do it through me. Transform my selfish heart, my lazy heart. I want God's glory to be reflected in my life, but I have to realize I'm not the source of that light. We are but mirrors of God's glory. And if the mirror is pointed the wrong direction, we begin to reflect what we are able to do and not what God is able to do. We are to be a reflection of God's glory. And when we do that, people again are drawn to his glory and they want to know him and they desire to see him. My hope and prayer as we read the, the Sermon on the Mount is, is not that we would say, wow, another list of things to do because we can't do them. But we would say, what does it look like for me, for my heart to be transformed into God's likeness so that he might do that work through me and in spite of me? Let us pray. Jesus, we know, I know, I'm not able to do this on my own. And God, even if I was, I know that that mirror would be pointed right to me and I would be thinking how good I'm doing. And so, Lord, I give you praise tonight that you do that work in me and through us, each and every one of us. And so, Lord, would you humble us? Would you reorient that mirror if it's pointed the wrong direction in any of us today that it might point to reflect your glory so that others might be drawn to you, that others might be um, just have a desire to know more about you because of what they see and how they see you working in us. May we always be a reflection of who you are and what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us for one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.